0: Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go.
1: Welcome to The Edge Podcast, your weekly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business, making you a happier, healthier, and richer business owner. And here's your host, Brandon White. Hey, Andrew. Hey Brandon, how's it going? Oh,
0: good man. This is much better than our, than our Zoom attempt. You sound great, crystal clear, man. Thanks a
1: lot. Awesome. How are you doing? Where are you coming to uh, us from? Coming to you from New York. Yep, New York City.
0: I heard it. Did it snow there? I'm I'm originally from Maryland. My mother said it snowed there this past weekend. Did it snow in New York?
1: (laughs) I think there was a little bit of a flurry, but. Overall, it's been it's been very nice. It got really nice for a couple of weeks and tricked us all into thinking that spring was here, and and then all of a sudden it was winter again, just like that. But it's really nice today. So I yesterday and today have been beautiful.
0: Right on, man. Well, thanks for joining. I I was interested in talking to you because I knew you sort of had a journey to build Gibbs. That's how you pronounce it, right?
1: That's right. Gives, G I V Z. Yep. Uh,
0: gives and donations before discounts. I love that slogan.
1: Thanks. <laughs> We're really, really excited about making, if we can make giving profitable for brands, then that's the true sustainability where a brand can actually say, yeah, this is better for my bottom line if I give money away. that's That's where we want to get.
0: So let's just jump into it. Let's talk about it. Gives is a platform that allows companies to integrate donations into their order process. Did I get that right?
1: Yes. So they allow brand it gives allows brands to run donation incentives in whatever form that may take. So it actually doesn't affect the checkout process other than, hey, if you check out now, you're going to earn credit to give to your favorite charity. And so there's no buttons to click. There's nothing to distract somebody from checking out because you don't want people to be right at the point of checkout and say, oh, what charity am I going to support here and call up their significant other and say, what charity did we support? And then all of a sudden you lose that sale, right? Like that that's something that we were very mindful of when we were building this. Again, keeping in mind that we want to make giving profitable. We want to actually be able to replace discounts with donations and have that be a financially viable solution for the brand. So how it works is somebody actually... You market it up front. You say, hey, when you spend over a $100 with us, you're getting 5% of your purchase back to give to any charity that you want. And if it's Earth Month, we're featuring three environmental charities. If it's Pride Month, we're featuring three LGBTQ plus charities that we've worked with in the past, et cetera, et cetera. And people then check out Streamlined as as every store has probably worked on that to no end. (laughs) And so keep that. Make sure that you don't mess with that. And then after somebody purchases, that's when they spend a hundred bucks. They now have $5, $10, $20 to give to any charity that they want to give to. And it happens post-purchase that they're able to allocate those funds.
0: Post-process in the next window after checkout. Correct. Wow, well, well, that's pretty cool. The thing that I was interested in is what have you found the data? Because as I listened to donations before discounts, I love that, was free shipping always had a high lift. And in your literature, you talk about that discounts can effectively, or not, um, donations can effectively have the same effect as discounts. Have you actually seen that across the data?
1: Oh, yeah. We've seen that, especially in terms of Hey, what does a 20% discount look like versus a 10% off plus 10% to give to charity versus a 20% to give to the charity of your choice in, you know, three blind tests with that across the, that as your, as your settings and say, Hey, here's your ABC test. B clearly performs the best 10% off plus 10% to give to a charity of your choice, but 20% to give to a charity of your choice has actually outperformed the straight up 20% off. So that was the really big, interesting piece here where people... Yes, if you're going to give them both, I'll take something for myself and give away something. That's the clear winner. And so, and to that end, actually, you mentioned shipping thresholds. What we're seeing... Shipping thresholds are clearly a big average order value mover, right? Somebody says, hey, spend $40 and you get free shipping. You're going to see your average order value go up above that $40 shipping threshold because people want that free shipping right And that, that's that's clear so a lot of our customers now use gives as the next incentive so let's say average order value is actually 50 bucks or 60 bucks you set your free shipping at 40 because you don't want people jumping to amazon to buy something or, or something like that but you should you set your gives threshold at 70 bucks so you set it slightly above average order value and you say hey free shipping at 40 dollars, but if you spend over 70 or spend over 75 we're going to give you 10% of your order back to give to a charity of your choice. And we've seen just in the banner up top, you can either rotate those two messages or put both messages up there, free shipping over 40, 10% to charity over 75. And that'll increase average order value 10 to 30% just by having a banner on top of your site.
0: It's pretty, it's pretty incredible when you, when you think about that. And I agree with you with the approach because the first thing that any confusion in that checkout, process, at least from my experience, will completely paralyze someone. And you are exactly right. You'd be like, I call Yvette, be like, hey, Yvette, I got three (laughs) things here. And she'd say, well, I can't answer you right now. I'm busy. And then I would probably leave the browser open totally, and it would be open in the exit cart in the or in the cart to exit for maybe a
1: few weeks totally and and hopefully you'd make that pr- purchase eventually but there's a real chance that you don't and so and and this is proven with data as well not just not just something that's that's up for debate or confusion but even just putting in one extra field like name if you can eliminate the name field conversion goes up anything that you have ahead of checkout lowers conversion right and so you you are really trying to minimize that and there are a bunch of companies out there trying to express checkout (laughs) as quickly as possible.
0: Well, I have a question because you really, while you're an expert in helping people give money to charities and fund charities, you're also an expert in checkout as a default from doing this. Have you found that one page checkouts, meaning you put your shipping information, your billing information and your credit card on one page is better or worse than doing multiple. So you'll see sites that say, put in your shipping address and then I gotta click and then I
1: fewer fewer clicks the better is always is always the rule. As much as you can have shipping address and then you know the the, the checkbox that says this is the same as my billing address and yes, okay, great. And that's the default action. Otherwise if you don't, okay, people have to click and fill that out. But keeping it on one page as much as possible, one click, yes, I'm done. That is that is far and away the the best way to do it. I think people are used to that at this point. I will say that if you are going to have multiple pages, having a like some dots at the top or lines across the bottom that say like, hey, this is step one of three or something like that. So people know that they are not going on an infinite loop and an infinite ride with you all, those help if you must have multiple pages. But if you can keep it to one page, the fewer fields, the better.
0: You basically have created the Amazon smile for every single person that has a store. This episode is sponsored by the Hale financial team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive, and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text CARA at 571-271-9086. And talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086. Now back to the show.
1: I think I would like to even say we... We've done a little bit more than that in terms of yes, Amazon Smile I actually have an interesting story about Amazon uh, Smile oh. and, and how and how they they initially started that. And I and I love this. I think again, like for Amazon, they wanted people to go to smile.amazon.com, right? And that avoided people typing in Amazon into their Google Chrome browser and then clicking the ad and them having to pay thirty cents to Google. Is that so a true story? I mean, I didn't hear it from somebody inside of Amazon. So you have, I have to, you always have to check your sources, but it makes a ton of sense. If you think about it, people typing in smile.amazon.com weren't clicking that ad. They were saving that 30 cents. And then 0.5% of your purchase on certain items was going to the charity that you chose ahead of time, which honestly was probably less than 30 cents (laughs) unless you were spending, spending over 60 bucks. So that was. That was a pretty cool, interesting way for them to save money, but give it to charity, right? And, and I think that that's really a smart, a smart thing that they built. And, and I love, I love that. I was one of the first Amazon smile users and I still always go to smile.amazon.com whenever I can and everybody should. But yes, I think, I think we've built something like that in terms of you're able to give back and you're able to choose the charity that you care about most. But what's different for us is we're seeing this short term buying impact happening. right? So it's not just, oh, this is feel good and something that you can feel good about and build brand long-term. We do incorporate all of that. But with Gives, you're impacting the short-term. You're impacting average order value now. You're impacting conversion rate right now. Lifetime value is also going to be better. But this is something where Amazon Smile, it's not like, oh, I was going to buy it somewhere else. But because of Amazon Smile, I'm going to buy it here and now. Whereas we've... We've seen the Gives offers elicit something like, oh, I've gotten this ad for this $300 pair of shoes. I've gotten 15% off. I've gotten 20% off. I've gotten 10% off ads. Now I just got an ad that said, if I buy it right now, I'm going to get $60 to give to any charity that I want. I like a charity. Wanted these shoes. I'm going to buy them. This is it. This is what actually like forces me and, and is the forcing mechanism in the short term to buy something. And that is the difference.
0: So we've talked about that it clearly increases lift, it's good for the humanity. How does someone is this a Shopify plugin? Is can this be is this a line of code? Can you use this in WooCommerce? What's the limitation or not limitation of
1: this? Great, great question. So I I think this even goes well beyond e-commerce. And I know it goes well beyond e-commerce because we've just launched with uh, a financial institution here in New York. We launched with a restaurant here in New York and even a commercial real estate company that's about to do something with us. So I'm happy to dive into all of that. But as of right now, in terms of pure plug and play, we have an open source, we have an open source API that anybody can generate money to give to a charity of their choice and pay for that. And, and give that credit to someone else. So that is open. And that's how the commercial real estate company and, and the financial institution are utilizing Gibbs. But in terms of e-commerce specifically, yes, Shopify, we have a plugin. So that's the super easy way to do it. Anybody else would have to use our API at the moment, but we do have WooCommerce, Salesforce Commerce, cloud cartridges, et cetera, on the roadmap.
0: Yeah. You, you really haven't been a, and I wasn't, it wasn't a trick question. You, how long have you been around?
1: Yeah. So we really, we launched a Shopify app in August of last year. And so that's really only been past eight months that we've been available plug and play on Shopify. But I actually started gives as a direct consumer Venmo for charity app four years ago, which is wild that we embarked on this endeavor so long ago. And, and one of the things, as I've listened to a couple of other folks chat on this, on this podcast, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was being in the game is something in and of itself. And even though we didn't have the right idea or business model to start, if I hadn't started there, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are today. And we definitely put ourselves in a position to get lucky where a brand, two brands came to us and said, hey, we want to give people credit on your Venmo for charity platform as a replacement of our discount." can we try that out. And so it wasn't even my idea, right? It was it was brands that came to us and asked us for that that we then said, "Sure, let's try it out." The results were astounding and we said, "Okay, this is what we do now and pivoted the business." So, a little bit tricky, a little bit longer of a of a question as to when did we get started, started it nearly 4 years ago at this point and and pivoted the business about a year and a half, 2 years ago.
0: So, did 4 years ago, did you were you doing this full time? Was this a side gig you 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 haven't a you know you have a you and I have a similar background in that yeah I think you were in investment banking probably when you yes. on your m b a and and yes. and that's a very traditional route for that segment. I'm saying that lovingly as someone who participated <laughs> in that and then and then left that but it is a very traditional thing, so uh, we're going to sort of work backwards here four years ago did were you doing this full time or is this a side hustle?
1: It's a great question. So I actually did. So I did the investment banking, then went to business school. I did six years of investment banking, which is a long time to do. Six years
0: before you got your MBA?
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Oh, well, I don't uh, usually it's I mean, you know, the gig, it's usually two years MBA and then either investment banking, venture capital or some Yeah, exactly consulting.
1: Right. (laughs) I, I (laughs) I
0: wish it was start your own company. And there's some stories around that, but the MBA is really designed to go into an institutional W-2 paycheck.
1: Totally. I had a bunch of friends who actually over the summer between the first and second year of the MBA tried out startup life. And they were like, no, 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 let me go right back to, you know, private equity or consulting or banking or whatever they, whatever they. Uh,
0: so you from. do six, you get out of college. you yep. and, and why? Well, out of college did you want to be an entrepreneur or was this investment banking something that was just the track that you
1: did? So I had, even before college, so my first job, I don't know if, and and I haven't spoken about this in a long time, but my first job in high school was at Vector Marketing, which is Cutco Knives, if you're familiar. (laughs) And that was like an entrepreneurial thing, a, a lot of issues with that company, but also a lot of smart things that that company did. And I was... Bought into that. And so I was a sales rep for them before college. After first year of college, I actually was an assistant manager with them and like hiring folks at 19, negotiating a lease for the summer and like running an office. So I had the entrepreneurial spirit at some point in there, but I didn't really know what exactly it was I wanted to do. So I thought that finance gave me the most open doors. So I did the GE financial management program summer between sophomore and junior year. And then. I said, you know what? Investment banking really is the the ultimate in terms of I can do anything from there. And so that was really my goal when I went into investment banking, got that internship between junior and senior year, ended up going, getting hired by Merrill Lynch, and the merger ended up at Bank of America. And from there, I actually didn't like bulge bracket investment banking <laughs> and joined an eight-person investment bank called portico capital that, that I was there for five years. So that was really like the big unlock there was that it was a much more entrepreneurial feel with eight people. The the folks I was working with were the smartest guys in the room. They had all the relationships and it was really a true value add type of service as opposed to what I felt like was a cog in a wheel and a giant, giant wheel at, at bank of America.
0: So you said something, Andrew, that I don't know what, Whenever someone uses the word interesting, you should be worried. But (laughs) he he said, well, I'm going to go into investment banking, and I knew that from from there I could do anything. And as a person who has an MBA, found that track, was a venture capitalist, but more so my entire life is a business owner. I hate to use the word entrepreneur, I think entrepreneur has been used on the internet too much to... I'm not minimizing someone selling kitchen knives. I'm not. I'm just saying building a scalable business with totally. processes and product market fit and not just a
1: marketing different it, thing. It's it, yeah.
0: it a different thing. So, yeah, I don't know that that's true. It, do you really think that, I mean, investment banking allows you to understand spreadsheets, numbers, valuations in many cases. And I don't I'm not saying yours was the case, but in many cases we backed into the numbers. We just said we thought the investment was good. The valuation was made up anyway, because, (laughs) I mean, yeah, you had to have comps for the LP, but that didn't matter, right? I mean, that it's really as much of an art as a science. And it doesn't teach you management, I mean, or or necessarily dealing with people. In fact, it probably teaches you how to be less involved with people because it's really numbers-based. It's not, oh, hey, I feel like, this should be more. Well, no, your customer acquisition cost is this. You're never going to make the money. You're going to need to borrow $100 million, <laughs> and the interest rate on that's going to be 6% because your bond rating shit. I mean, you're laughing because it's true, right?
1: It's it's def- There's definitely truth to that. I, I totally agree, especially on the bulge bracket banking side, right? So bulge bracket banking side, and, and again, maybe I'd have to rethink, I was just telling you in college... They were like, Hey, if you do investment banking, you can go anywhere from that. Right. And so now looking back at it with this type of reflective piece on it, that's a good point. I think especially, especially in Bank of America, sitting behind a desk from 8 a.m. to 3 a.m., which is a whole different story, but doing that, you know, every day and, and really just working in spreadsheets, never seeing the clients that we were talking to, only reporting to people that were, were tough. To say the least. Yeah, I don't think that really prepared me for a whole lot of stuff other than thinking analytically and dealing with some stress. (laughs) I think when I moved over to the to the M&A eight person investment bank in Portico, where I was working for people that I truly respected, that truly respected me where I was involved in every ounce of client activity. So every meeting I was attending, because there were only two or three of us on a deal team, right? And so I was... If if there was a deal getting done, where it certainly was not just all about the numbers. I mean, I know for a fact, at least it's clear in my head. I guess I can't say I know for a fact. It's clear in my head that a company with the same set of numbers who hired us versus a company who didn't hire us and tried to sell this company themselves to Thomson Reuters i think hundreds of millions of dollars difference in price if they don't get doesn't have to be us but somebody to help them position this run a process the same numbers could result in very very different outcomes and and we're talking at the growth level i think it's the same at 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 the venture capitalist level, venture capitalist level is interesting, because then they're really the numbers don't matter, right? Like you are just thinking as a venture capitalist, how can I return my fund? And every investment that I make, I'm going to make 50 investments, I need to believe that every single one of these can return my fund, And I know some of them are going to go to zero. And so the historical financials aren't there. So they can't matter. So that's totally different. But when we were doing investment banking and selling companies for anywhere from a hundred to a billion dollars, a hundred million to a, to, to a billion dollars, those companies had five years of historical financials. They had trend lines. And, and even with all of that data, I still think that a company could be sold for $400 million. If they don't position it well and don't run a process well and $530 million if they do. And, and so I think with the same set of numbers, there was a lot of nuance. There was a lot of stuff I learned in going through that and being hands on, even just to the point of like talking the CFO off the ledge when they're getting all these diligence requests. <laughs> and he's like, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I, I understand you don't want to deal with this. This is crazy amount of diligence, but they are paying $530 million to buy you. They have to unturn every stone,
0: and I was being extreme. And I know we have listeners and some f- my, my friends, and I'm sure yours out there that I'm busting the chops on, but it 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 is different. And the skills that that you eloquently pointed out are vital. I mean, to run a spreadsheet even to this day correctly, it matters. I mean, number numbers matter. There's no two ways totally. about it.
1: Totally, totally. Well, I'm also a math major and an econ. Kind of math major, but math was definitely my my first love there on the school side of things, and so numbers are are super super important on in my life, and I feel like they're pretty black and white. But even still, I recognize that the positioning of those numbers may even matter more.
0: I just find it interesting about the marketing is hey, be a VC, be an investment banker, you can go anywhere. Well. You can definitely make a lot of money if you're good and you work till 3 a.m. and you pit right. put in your time. I'm not right. sure that you can go anywhere, but we're going to get to that. So you work for this small, you go to college, you're working for, well, what was the name of the company that you worked for?
1: Bank of America? No, or, not
0: Bank of America, the one before that.
1: So I did GE Asset Management, but then I did uh, Vector Marketing.
0: Yeah, Vector uh, Marketing. So you do Vector Marketing from Vector Marketing to GE to yeah. Bulge Bank, to a small investment MA shop, and yes. then what happens?
1: So I was there, I really liked the job in terms of, it was definitely the best investment banking job out there in my mind, and I saw a business, actually we sold a business, and this had a real effect on me, where I, we sold the business twice over, we sold it to a private equity firm, then we sold it from out of the private equity firm to, to a very big, multi-billion dollar company. And so we sold it twice. I got to know the CEO of that company very, very well. I was always the kind of the lowest guy on the totem pole. I think he took a liking to me doing all the work (laughs) and 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 he and he requested that I be on the deal the second time, et cetera, et cetera. So it was actually a really cool relationship that I had built with uh with this person. But he also his business was really cool. It was something that was It was the most profitable business I had seen. And uh, having sold dozens of companies, I got to see a lot of financial statements. And I was looking at, you know, what is the profitability of these companies? And this was the most profitable company I'd seen with like 50% EBITDA margins, crazy stuff and crazy. And they were saving lives. They were actually saving lives because they were screening folks and, and making sure that there weren't fake engineers and fake doctors and fake pilots running around in the Middle East. So that was their business. And it was pretty wild. And they had a database that they could say, like, somebody comes over and says, Hey, you know, I went to the Harvard of Qatar. And it's like, actually, that address is a shack in the middle of nowhere. And we, and no, and so they, they, we've already sent people there, right. And they, and they have this database now, where they could do it super efficiently and check on on, on folks that were lying about about credentials. So, so
0: it was a, dil- a diligence company.
1: Diligence company. Yeah. Well, and so really, really, really interesting. It's a commoditized thing in the US, but a- around the world, it's not. And he had the database. And so taught me the value of building a database like that. Really, really, really interesting. And and that was really part of the inspiration. He was also in my ear between him and, and my now wife, who was an entrepreneur herself turned VC now. <laughs> um, they were like, hey, like, what are you doing sitting here in investment banking? You want to make the world a better place, go find a problem and fix it. You know, go find a problem and fix it. And so I went back to business school. I applied to HBS. I figured if I could get in there, I would go, slip through the cracks, and got in and, and said, you know, all right, what am I going to do with this one and precious life? Which is what they ask you over and over again. I thought at that point, I thought I would join somebody doing some sort of social, social impact. But also for profit, for profit first, social impact second, business. And that's what I thought I would join. I was also the treasurer of a nonprofit. We actually skipped over that piece, which is important. I was the treasurer of a nonprofit for five years. And so while I was doing the investment banking thing, and so when they ask you, what are you going to do with this one and precious life over and over again? I said, you know what? It's annoying to me that I can Venmo my friend $20 for a burger and a beer from last night dinner in two seconds, but he's, but that same friend is doing a fundraiser for a charity that he cares about. And like to donate $20 to that is going to take me like four minutes and it's annoying. (laughs) Like why, why is it 10 seconds versus four minutes? I don't get it. And so there should be a Venmo for charity. And that's actually how I started that. So it was kind of a side hustle in terms of like a business school project in some sense. And then after graduating, I Soon got married, had baby number one, and so I was working on this relatively full-time or what I thought was full-time, and then as we pivoted the business into what we were supposed to be doing, raised uh, a pre-seed round last year, now we're we're really in it.
0: Well, you get out of business school, there's a two-year gap from your four years. You, you say, I'm sort of working yeah. on it. Does that mean you're doing consulting to fund yourself? I, I, and I'm asking these questions, Andrew, because yeah. nobody talks about these questions, right? They. And then people have, I think, you know, it's a whole reason I did this whole podcast is yeah, I've always had these questions. The question that nobody will ask is, well, actually, what did you do yeah. to get there? So what were you doing? Was your wife paying the bills? Like, how'd that work? Yeah,
1: yeah. So from the investment banking side of things, I had some savings and that I was using a lot of that. My wife was also... Paying a lot of the bills. (laughs) And so there was that coming in as well. I didn't really do consulting. She, she was a CMO for hire at that time and making, making good money. I was work. I thought I was working on Gibbs full time, right? Like that was, that was my, that was my whole thing, right? I was running around with a outsourced dev team and a co-founder and we were trying to figure it out, but we were not drawing salaries. It was really, really tough a lot of i have to give my wife a lot of credit a lot of tough conversations we don't have like we don't have that ultimate safety net i'm sure a lot of folks are are thinking like okay well did you have family money or something like that no neither of us have have that i i did make good money doing investment banking so we had savings to to work off of but after having a kid especially it was like whoa we're going to run out of money real quick if i don't start making money and make this into a real business
0: so, what was that conversation with How long did you date your wife before you got married?
1: Well, we met when we were twenty four and I don't know if you should meet your soulmate at twenty four <laughs> that was uh we went we went through some ups and downs, but um after so, so we dated from we dated for three years, broke up for a year and a half, and then I went back to business school. Part of going back to business school, to be honest, was also just to get out of New York City given the breakup, et cetera, et cetera, and uh went to Boston. Halfway through the first semester at Boston, I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) And so luckily we, we got back together. We were meant to be together. It's very clear. And so she's amazing. I, I joke that once you talk to her, never really need to talk to me again. Um, she's, she's way better, but, um, married up. And, and so yeah, we did it again from all through business school. And then right out after we got out of, after I got out of business school, we got married six months later. You said two,
0: two things. One you shouldn't meet your soulmate at 24 and two is we were absolutely meant to be together. So what does you shouldn't meet your soulmate at 24 mean?
1: <laughs> well, I think for me, I was the type of person that I didn't have a sip of alcohol until college, right? So I was late on, on some of this stuff. And so at 24, I still was immature. And uh, I think that at, that at that point in time, I wasn't ready to meet the person that was going to be my forever person, but because we were so meant to be together, we immediately we moved in together within six months. We were all again, we were twenty four. We were like we didn't know exactly what we were doing. Moved in together within six months, and then and then you know years started to go by, and there was no perceived progress being made because I wasn't ready to propose, and we had been living together already. So if I could go back and do it again, maybe you staged out a little bit better so that there's at least some progress, perceived progress being made. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, we, we agreed, hey, we both have some things to work out. We worked them out separately. And luckily, we were both there to to come back together.
0: Is your wife from the East Coast?
1: She is, yes.
0: I'm going to say this lovingly because I'm from the East Coast. But I find it interesting that the difference, and I'm on the West Coast now and been here for about a decade, but Maryland kid, so one of the yep. colonies as well. The It's interesting that you have to have this perceived progress in a relationship <laughs> because my wife and I dated for 14 years before we got married. We've been together wow. 27 years now. But now it was different in the sense that on our first date, my wife said to me at Twinnies Steaks in Galena, Maryland, where we were living in Chestertown at the time because I was working on my first master's degree, was that she said, hey, if you want to have kids, let's just do this date and be done because I just don't Right. You know, I don't see that. And as an, e- wow, that was the look right there. Right. That as an East Coast kid, you're like, what? Like, what What does she know that I don't know? Then I'm like, God, is something wrong with her? And I'm going to like touch a nerve or some shit. But right. it, it, it wasn't that. But the, whatchamacallit, she's from California. So it was very... A different outlook so do you think that that's a cultural thing like this perceived progress that you say you had to make
1: i think it might it could be cultural i think it's probably just individual as to as to how how you view the world and 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 feel internally i think again as, us being as young as we were just trying to think about like okay where is this going what are we doing I just feel like, and maybe it's revisionist history, I feel like if we hadn't moved in together so quickly, potentially a year goes by updating, two years go by updating, then it's like, hey, what's going on here? Well, why don't we move in together? Okay, we move in together. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's good. And then and then it's like, okay, well, what's the next thing? Okay, well, now we're thinking about making this forever. I I also just feel from my side, the moment I laid eyes on her, I was like, okay, this is my person. And and I think individually, I had, my parents had split up before getting back together and now they've been together for 50 years or whatever it's been something crazy and so i had heard about maybe that had been ingrained in my head a little bit i think it's just a very personal decision and different folks will, will lay it up differently and that was a very tough time for us but we both made a lot of strides individually during that breakup time but I, but we ended up in the right spot
0: so you get together in business school you sort of get back on track and yes. then you decide you're going to do a startup and then you have yes. a, ki- and then you have a kid. Yes. I, I mean, this is, this is seems like a lot of, a lot of high stress situations. You're living off of your savings. Did you, did you both sit down and say, okay, I have this much savings that I saved up from investment banking. It will get me through two years. You have, totally. I have eighteen eighteen 18 months to get either to a funding situation yes. or yes. I'm gone. Is that, was it that
1: cut and dry? That's, it was, it's exactly, that's exactly the conversation we sat down and had. We used an Excel spreadsheet and we said, okay, we have this much time before I need to either cut and run or, and go back to investment banking. Quite frankly, that was, that was what allowed me to sleep at night, which was, and I think a lot of folks listening, like if you're going to take this leap, it's what is the What's the best alternative if this doesn't work out? And what what does your life look like if this doesn't work out? And for me, it was always I go back into investment banking and I can make the money that I would need to support a family. And quite frankly, she's a boss and she was making good money herself. And so that factored into our into our spreadsheet. And she's going to be someone who continues to work. She just as a personal preference is not going to be a stay at home mom she wants to work and she's she loves what she does. So that was we knew we were going to have that income as well, but she she actually launched her own fund a year and a half later. So we tore up that whole spreadsheet and started a new one. But at that point we had gotten we had gotten some initial angel funding and so I was drawing a very very low salary and we made a new spreadsheet and everything adjusts.
0: So she's basically doing a startup too. So she raised a venture fund?
1: She did, yeah. Well, she just closed it out very, very recently, past week or two.
0: So you're both like doing startups with a one baby
1: or two? Now we have two babies. Yep. <laughs> so the pandemic hits and we decide she's gonna start a fund. I'm going to pivot the entire business <laughs> and and continue to to go down this track. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have a second, second baby. So that all happens in the middle of the craziness that was COVID and is COVID back in the middle of 2020, we get pregnant. So we had the baby in 2021. She's having the baby on fundraising calls and talking to LPs and doing all sorts of stuff from the hop, like crazy, crazy stories. I'm talking to reporters from the hospital, like very interesting stuff. But at the end of the day we both love what we do. So that was that was what got us through that. We also have super supportive parents from the sense of we were living with our parents at the time for COVID. So we were living back and forth between New Jersey and Long Island driving back and forth every week, every half week actually. <laughs> and it was crazy, but we owe so much to our parents for watching one baby and then eventually two babies and they still help out so much we could not have done it without the support system that we have
0: it sounds absolutely insane Andrew
1: yes. but <laughs> it was let's it talk
0: is. about going back to your mvp basically did, how, what did you do to build the mvp cuz you you mentioned that you you built an app was it a, what did you use Venmo as the platform so that people could
1: donate or how did you do it? No, no. So we actually built. So, so way back when, so the MVP of the old product was an actual app that you could download on the iOS app store, Android app store. And it was something where you put in your financial information, you l- l- put your credit card in, put in your bank account, whatever it may be. And then you can simply type in any charity. Donate to them 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, boom, boom, boom. Have all your tax deductible receipts in one spot, et cetera, et cetera. We had about 3,000 power users using that, donating more than they ever had before, loving it. That was cool. But at the end of the day, the unit economics of that business did not work. We had two brands. What's that? Mean? It, it cost us. So, the, our, the way we were monetizing was we were allowing people to tip us. And so, people would tip us on average about 6% of the donation that they were making, which was quite high and is consistent with what GoFundMe and others see. But at the end of the day, the payback period, what it cost us to get somebody to download the app and install, and so, download the app to their phone, put their credit card information in, and pay that cost of acquisition was way too high compared to the revenue that we were making from, from these individuals. And it was only getting worse. So like our early adopters had better cost of acquisition than the folks that we were trying to get later on down the road. And so we realized this within six to 12 months that this was not going to be a viable business. And we were trying to figure out what to do. And so we had two brands who said, Hey, we want to give people credit on your platform. If they buy from us. So they ran A-B test on Facebook. They said, here's $50 off versus A test, B test, here's $50 to give to a charity of your choice. And the money to give to the charity of their choice performed better in both cases, 20% better. One was like 19% better, one was 20% better than, than the discount. And so that was really eye-opening to me. They were both luxury type of brands. And so I thought that, okay, well, we at minimum have a luxury product here <laughs> where More price insensitive folks would rather, whether they know it or not, they, you can't give people the choice, but blind tests, they would actually rather give the money to a charity that they care about most. And that's going to get them to move even more so than discount. So that was wild. The other big learning was that we gave people like $50 of credit on our app. And so people had to download the app to donate the money. And we got more people complaining about that than people who actually downloaded the app. And donate the money. So this taught us two things. One, we needed to build an actual product around this because <laughs> we can't just like adapt the exact product that we had for direct consumer to companies. So the companies that that we ran this with were both like, "Hey, we can't do this anymore. Our customers are complaining about it." It was cool because we got a twenty percent lift in in revenue, and actually it was. Even cooler because we had no cost associated with it because nobody allocated the money, <laughs> nobody donated, but we, we we obviously can't do this anymore. And so that's what led me to say, hey, there's something there. Let's work on. We pivoted the whole business. We we had to fire some folks at that point. Like, is real turmoil that that we had. We had raised you know some angel funding as I mentioned. We, that was starting to run out. We needed to pivot the whole business. We had hired direct consumer marketers. We had hired direct consumer folks, sales folks. And we we're like, okay, this is not even sales folks, really just marketing side and, 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 and partnership side. And we said, okay, we're going to part way with, part ways with those folks because we need to sh- save cash, raise a new round and, and, and do this whole new business. So I really think of, I really look at myself and within gives being a second time entrepreneur just from having that first, that, that first failure.
0: So you basically just completely regrouped
1: and completely how, many, regrouped.
0: how many people were, were with you, you had, you mentioned a co-founder, was it two of you yeah. and, a, and a development team?
1: Yeah. Outsourced, uh, an outsourced development team. So that was, that was that. And then we were six people by the time we tried to like fully pivoted the business. So we were six people. We brought it back down to three, and really now it was and at this point it's just myself my co-founder and and we actually hired one of the developers who was from the outsourced place he's now with us full time so the three of us are still all all together and now we're seven seven folks and building back up
0: and how much money have you raised
1: so we to date in total we've raised 3 million dollars
0: how was raising money this is the first time you've ever raised money, you've sold companies, but haven't been That's on the right. other end.
1: That's right. And so I thought that I that would be a more of a easy thing for me to do, given that I had prepared so many companies for sale or capital raising. But what I realized was stage really matters so i was so used to taking five years of historical financials cutting the data into 180 different graphs grabbing the 10 graphs that look the most up and to the right and presenting those right (laughs) and then i get then i get gives and fundraising here and it's there's no historical financials there's nothing no graph that goes up and to the right in fact you have to sell investors on how big this can become and what your vision for the company is, and that was something that I really was not accustomed to, and I really wasn't good at. And I was like trying to figure out, like, okay, I know that this can be big in my heart of hearts, but I have to be able to talk about it and <laughs> intelligently and tell people what is in my head and what is what is the vision for this company. And so that was something that was totally different. The deck looked totally different than any deck I had put together for selling companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. This was a totally different beast, totally different animal. And um, and it was hard. It was hard. There was a lot of no's. And there was a lot of folks that said, I think I see what you're saying, but I'm not really sure. You're a little bit early. I'd love to keep in touch. But I will say you find those investors and you read about this and it's almost annoying to the point where you read about like, oh, there's like there's the right person out there for you. There's the right investor out there for you. And when we raised our round, our pre round last year from ENIAC and Accomplice, in particular Vic Singh at ENIAC and, and TJ Mahoney at Accomplice, who's now got his own fund in Vinyl, I really do feel like those two guys understood what we were trying to build. They had been there. They had done that. They had seen email marketing come up as nothing turn into a multi-billion dollar industry. They'd seen SMS marketing come up from nothing, turn into a multi-billion dollar industry. And they invested in these companies, whether it's Clavio, whether it's Attentive, PostScript, they invested in these companies at $10 million valuations. And now they're $6 billion valuations, right? Like these are the guys that see it at the $10 million level. And they said, hey, giving marketing, gives marketing, donation incentives are going to be a thing. That's going to be the next big thing. I see what you're saying. And in fact, they could see what I was saying so much that they said it better than I did, right? And I was like, "Whoa, this is crazy." And they're like, "We want to partner with you. We want to help you. And we would love to invest." And that after hearing a bunch of no's and now a year into it, these guys, you know, I feel like they give me superpowers. They're unbelievable. And so I hear a lot about VCs that are these big bad VCs that don't have the same interests aligned as the, as the, as the entrepreneurs or as the founders. I've yet to experience that. I hope I never have to experience it, but maybe I'm just not successful enough to experience it yet. <laughs> but I think that, um, if you find the right people, there are the right people out there for you.
0: So it took you basically 12 months to ra- to finish the round.
1: Yeah. We paused in between. You don't want to be in market for too long. So we were, we were thinking about it. Then we had a a couple of big deals come in and we said, you know what, actually, we should be able to get better terms if we can, if we can have some of these bigger deals close and those deals did close them. So we, we started out on like a consulting basis, almost with some very, very large companies like H&M, Tervis, Smile Direct Club, and, and, and others that we actually had as clients and have as clients but they're more on like one-off type of bases. And so we wanted to shift the business to something that could plug into Shopify to start uh, on a scalability side, but ultimately used by anybody, anytime as an always-on incentive to get people to either buy more, increase their average order value, buy now, increase conversion rate, and ultimately increase lifetime value and have conversations with your customers that you could otherwise never have. Like, what do you care about most in this world? Here's ten dollars to give it to whatever to whatever you care about. And so we that was the vision for for the company. And ultimately now the vision is to be able to make brands and charities work together a whole lot more seamlessly because the audience sharing that should be happening is not happening on a one-off, on a one-to-one type of basis. There needs to be technology built to facilitate that. And that's ultimately ultimately what we're building and, and TJ and Vic could see that. And, and that's what they were, that's what they were interested in.
0: Why do you think it works so well? I'm sitting here thinking like, would I, you know, do I want $10 off or do I want $10 to give (laughs) to somebody else? I mean, why, why is, I mean, is it, is it, well, is it a segment of the customers that you just so happen to be seeing millennials? I'm I'm not, it could be Gen Gen X or it could be baby boomers or is it, one of those segments or is it across all of them?
1: It really is across all of them. It's wild. And the crazy part is we have done the testing. If you give people the choice, discount or money to give to a charity of their choice, they always choose discount. Always. If it's a, if it's a choice of an active choice. But if you run an A B test and say you get 10% off. And a blind, you know, a separate subset, a separate group that looks exactly the same. You get 10% to give to a charity of your choice. The 10% to give to the charity of your choice matters more. I think people are done with the subconsciously. I think one, it takes the guilt out of shopping. You wanted to buy this thing already. Now you're doing it for a good reason. The best way that I can think about it, if I was go back to, to college days of like, if I go to a restaurant with some friends and we're going to all get a beer At this restaurant, but the, on the menu, it says like, Hey, if you buy the pitcher of margaritas, it comes with $5 to give to a charity of your choice. Like, all right. Well, I guess we're getting three pitchers of margaritas so that we can help the world. You know, like this is something that that's the, that's kind of the feedback that we're getting from our customers. I actually went and talked to talk to a woman who that shoe example that I mentioned earlier, right? She's she was saying, I wanted this $300 pair of shoes. I felt a little bit guilty about it, but when I got hit with a Give's ad that literally said if I buy these shoes now I'm going to get $60 to give to any charity that I want, I had just come out of a board meeting with a charity. I can give it to that charity that I sit on the board of. Sure. Like that works and it resonates and it makes her more enamored with the shoe brand, right? And and maybe she'll shop there again later. And now we're starting to build out integrations with, with attentive, with Postscript, with Clavio, where brands who sell something on Earth Day this year and somebody chooses, you know, $20 goes to Oceana. Next year, 10 days before Earth Day or on Earth Day, you can send those people a text and say, "Hey, last year you donated to Oceana. If you buy now, we're going to give you another twenty five dollars to give to Oceana or any environmental charity that you want if you want to upgrade so or update so that's that's the that's the power of of what we're building in terms of consumer psychology. I think it works because Gen Z has really pushed this. they care the most, right so anybody targeting Gen Z they don't want just discounts. discount brand means that it's not high quality, right. That's what, that's what discounts mean in, in their head. And this type of giving back means that this brand shares their values and personalization wise. If you talk to 10 Gen Z folks, they care. They are, pa- they're going to be fiery, passionate about 10 different things. Not one of them will be passionate about the same thing. They'll be passionate about 10 different things. And so that's the, that's the start of the wave that's crept up into the millennials. And honestly, we've seen it into the, into the boomers who now have more money. And when they were in their 20s, they would have taken they would be like, no, I'm not buying anything that's not on discount. But now they're like, you know what? I want higher quality stuff. I'm willing to pay for that. And actually, I I, I get what my kid is saying, where they care about what the what what the company stands for. And so if they're going to let me donate to a charity that I care about, that's actually pretty cool. And so we're seeing it work across across generations and across industries.
0: How does your model work? Where do you make money
1: yeah. So we made it. This was also a journey, but we made it super simple for brands to say, yes, we want more brands donating as much as humanly possible. So we have a very low monthly fee to access the platform for the brands anywhere from 19 to $299 a month. And then we charge 10% of the donations. So brands can choose to have that come out of the donation or they can add the 10% on top, and so pay $11 for every $10 donation, or they could just pay 10 and then 9 will go to charity, and $1 comes to us.
0: Do you send the people who donate the money the tax information so they can deduct that from their taxes at the end of the year?
1: Because they are not the ones donating, they cannot deduct it from their taxes. The brands are the ones that are actually donating the money. That said, we do send them a receipt, right? We send them a receipt for, for the closed loop piece, right? So. Very unlike the exact opposite, I'll say, of like a roundup solution where somebody's saying like, hey, I want to I just spent one hundred and nineteen dollars and seventy two cents on on uh on a pair of shoes. OK, do you want to donate an extra twenty eight cents and round up your round up your purchase? That's actually twenty eight cents coming from you. That's where you should be able to write that off and you should get a receipt. But really, realistically, with those solutions, you check that box. You never hear about that $0.28 cents again. You have no clue if it went to the charity. It's usually a charity that the brand chose. And so that's that's generally what happens. We're trying to fully flip that on its head where it's like, this didn't actually cost you anything. You purchased a product that you wanted. You got a meaningful amount, not $0.28. Cents. You got $28 that you could give to a charity of your choice. You chose that charity and we send you a receipt immediately upon you allocating that money that says, hey, yes, Teres is now sending $28 to Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center because you made this choice, and the funds will arrive in the next 30 to 45 days.
0: That makes sense. I was, I mean, it's honestly tax time. So, for me <laughs> I, as 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 we're yeah. as we are recording, my wife is doing ta- our taxes and yep. <laughs> and has been for the last three days, both of us but so that was on my mind, but it's very similar to what I had a friend he he passed away, it was sad, but he used to donate to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in our name every year, and mm. we didn't get to deduct that, but it was in our name, and he made yes. the donation, so he got the deduction yes. so it's, yes. it's, it's very similar similar to that totally totally um, um, but I love what That's you're right. doing I appreciate you sharing your journey and some intimate information about your relationship and psychology about for any listener out there who is younger that you know you can find your soulmate at 24 I think I found mine at 26 so it it does work but relationships are about as hard as a startup I don't have kids. I can only imagine both of you with a startup venture fund with your wife, a startup company, and two kids is absolutely insane over at the Foreman House. But uh, <laughs> you're smiling and you're making it work. So absolutely. with that, what does your day look like?
1: Yeah, days are, are wild and fun. And I guess I was I was taught to make the most of, of every day, as it always could be your last. So I, our, our days are... Recently, to be honest, I have been skipping the workout in the mornings, which I'm not proud of, but I got to be honest, I have been skipping the workout, been super, super tired, trying to get that last inkling of sleep <laughs> that I that I can. So my one year olds will wake up anywhere from 630 to 730, which actually is pretty good as far as one year olds go and, and kids go. So can't complain. So get up with him. And then my three year old's already a a teenager, so she she sleeps until like we wake her and it's time to go to daycare school at like eight thirty. And so we'll wake her at that point. And then really my my wife does take over at that point. We also have a nanny who comes in and helps he's she's she watched the one year old all day. My wife will take make lunch and take my daughter to school and drop her off at school and I'll so I'll start start the work day around eight. Thirty eight forty five, and then I'm really working eight forty five to six ish. We will pick up my daughter from school at that from daycare at that point. Some really nice family time from six to seven seven thirty when my little one goes to bed. Then have some family time with the with the older one until nine, and then she goes to bed, and then. I'd say unfortunately in some sense, but again, we both love what we do probably around nine, nine 30, depending on the day we will, we'll both do a little bit of work (laughs) and, uh, and then try to get to bed to, you know, to get seven, eight hours sleep.
0: So you aim for seven or eight hours sleep every night.
1: Aim for it. Yes.
0: And you work from home, both of you.
1: We do. We have, we both have like a, a working space nearby that we can escape to. If and when needed,
0: but you don't. You, 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 and your co-founder and the people who you work with aren't trying to have an office per se. You're just trying to get out of the house, effectively.
1: Yeah, we grew. We grew during COVID. So actually, my my company is very dispersed. We have a uh, um people in New York, Boston, Iowa, Atlanta, Georgia area, all over the place.
0: Got it. Well, thanks for sharing that. It sounds like a a, a crazy day. But you know what? The, the truth of the matter is, if you want to build anything, it's not easy, and there's work life balances. It's just a, it's a great thing to talk about, but it's really hard to do it. And I've been doing this for two and a half decades. And there, I, yesterday I missed doing my iron neck exercises and my sauna and, but I did push ups and sit-ups. I mean, it's just, you know, I didn't ride my bike and I'm going to try to ride my bike today. It's just, that's just the reality of it, man. It's just not, it's, totally. it's an unrealistic expectation <laughs> to do it. It's, it's super hard, especially in the beginning. So I think you're doing a great job. Can you leave our listeners, Andrew, with, three HPTs, high percentage tips based on all of your experience from investment banking from vector to investment banking to gives.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, the the number one takeaway throughout my entire life has been, it's all about the people. So whether it was investment banking, you know, the people that you're working with, the people that you're surrounding yourself with, that is of the utmost importance. And so, when you do meet your soulmate, you shouldn't let her go even for a little or her or him go for 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 even a little bit of time. I think it again, it's all about the people, and if you're building a business, the people that you surround yourself with, your co-founders, your employees, they will make or ba- break your business even more so than the business itself and so that is again an annoying thing that you read about, but you can only understand once you once you live it very, very frustrating <laughs> um. But that is that is really true. I'm happy to chat with anybody about that at any time. I think that that's that's number one. Number two is just get out there and do it and create your own luck. I think that is a, a very big... You hear a lot about breaks that people got and luck along the way. And I think luck plays a massive factor in being successful, but not in the sense of... I forget who said this, but somebody mentioned to me recently a quote where they say, it's amazing that the more I prepare and practice, the luckier I get, right? And and I think that that is really, really true. And something that is like, you have to be out there. You have to be doing this. Was it lucky that two customers came to me and said, hey, we want to try this? And that was the answer to what, what business we were actually supposed to be doing. Yes, that was lucky. But if I had not been building the Venmo for Charity app in the first place, I would never nobody would have come to me out of the blue and said, Hey, let's try this. <laughs> right. So so I think you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky and be out there every single day putting one foot in front of the other, even if you're not exactly sure where you're going, you have to go out there and do it and put yourself in a position to get lucky. That's two. And I think that's probably more 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 than enough if I want to come if we have to come up with a third one. Let's see. I mean, on the, on the third side of things, I would say. Try out gifts in whatever capacity that you're at, in whatever capacity that you're at, because it's amazing how much it works. Do something nice for someone just, just in general. Watch how it makes you feel and, and just think about giving that type of feeling to, to all of your customers. That's, that's something that, that we experience every day. And the brands that we're working with give us great feedback in terms of. This is the only positive customer service emails we ever get are from Gibbs (laughs) because people are like, this is really cool. So try it out for yourself.
0: Well, we're going to give you a pass on that absolutely shameless self-promotion because you (laughs) are doing something good for people. So we're going to give you a pass on that, Andrew. I would normally absolutely not let that happen, but... It is true. You are doing something really good for people and, (laughs) and the ability to to make it easy to give when a lot of people don't know that, you know, they don't know how to do that. So I appreciate you sharing that and joining today. How can, where, where can people find gives?
1: So people can find Gives. So it's giv That's the best resource. Our website, Gives.com, giv We're also active on LinkedIn. We do LinkedIn lives with special guests every Tuesday around 11 a.m. Eastern. So you can always tune in there. Active on LinkedIn, also on on Twitter and Instagram at get gives. So G-E-T-G-I-V-Z at get gives. On instant Twitter, I'm also Starting to finally use use Twitter a lot more, uh, so you can follow me at a Forman a a f o r m a n twenty two a Forman twenty two on Twitter. I'm active there. DMs are open, so feel free to hit me up and ask me any questions, anything. I'm an open book. If you couldn't tell from the conversation here, and uh, I've had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for for having me on.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for joining, today. Really appreciate it. Cool. Bye, everyone. Thanks for being generous with your time and joining us for this episode of The Edge. Before you go, a quick question. Are you the type of person who wants to get 100% out of your time, talent, and ideas? If so, you'll love our monthly Edge newsletter. It's a monthly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business. In each newsletter, we pull back the curtain on our business and show you exactly what's happening, the real numbers, real conversion rates, lessons learned from failed and successful strategies, and how we're investing the money we make from our business to outperform the general stock market. We lay out what we're doing to get 75% conversion rates on our product pages, How we're optimizing our Facebook, Instagram, and other paid ads to get our leads under $3.87. The results from our email A-B tests. Results from strategies I test to get more done in less time. That allows me to ride my bike 100 plus miles a week, work out, spend time with Yvette, and still successfully run our business. How I'm investing the money we make from our business that has led our retirement account to average 20% over the last 10 years. The exact stocks, ETFs, cryptocurrencies, and other investments we're buying each and every month, and tons of other actionable information. Imagine the time and money you'll save by having this holy grail of business intelligence. You can take all of it, apply it to your life as an entrepreneur to avoid costly mistakes and be happier, healthier, and richer. As a fellow entrepreneur who's aiming for nothing short of success, you owe it to yourself to subscribe. Check out the special offer with bonuses for you as a listener at edgenewsletter.com. Again, that's edgenewsletter.com.